Welcome to another edition of Media Insultant. This is edition number 22, Keith. It's our weekly take on the state of media, all the traditional radio, print, TV, and of course, new media, digital. And the opinions are ours. Make no question about it. You're going to hear our opinions anyway. My co-host is Keith Samuels. Keith, good morning. Good morning, Jackson. Greetings from Southern California. And uh, geez, after 22 weeks, you'd think we'd, we'd get good at this, but uh, you know, we'll see how it goes. <laughs> well, let's, let's not up our expectations too much. A couple of quick uh, things. Uh, we are going to be doing a Media Insultant as a podcast here in the next couple of weeks. Takes a couple of weeks to get them online, but we're beginning to post them. And so anybody that wants to listen rather than watch us, we'll have a podcast up pretty quickly, also called Media Insultant. And uh, should you be watching this on YouTube, we always appreciate a subscribe button. You know, I'm beginning to sound like all the other guys on YouTube. <laughs> Click the subscribe button. And, and of course, we do appreciate the comments and the likes on all the platforms we've gotten. It's, it's been a lot of fun. I've heard from people I haven't heard from in years, and they've enjoyed, uh, enjoyed what we've said. <laughs> what they say, they, <laughs> they may just be being polite. All right, Keith, let's uh, start off. We had an interesting couple of uh, charts that compared the top 20 rated cum radio stations in 2000 compared to the top 20 rated community radio stations in 2020. Chris Hoff did some data on it and you had some real interesting observations. Well, you know, God bless Chris. Um, he's kind of like the ratings historian and, and it was this, this kind of thing was, is, is right up my alley. Just, just turns me on just like the annual uh, list of the top billing radio stations. You know, this is the top cuming radio stations, but we always lose track. We do, you know, we have no idea of history in our business, particularly on the radio side. So you go back and you go, Oh my gosh, look at all the stations that were in the, that were the top 20 cuming radio stations in America, and we should define CUME for those of us, those of you that aren't familiar with it, but CUME is the total number of different listeners to a radio station over the course of a week, seven days, 6 a.m. to midnight, CUME. And that's the total number of different listeners. It's not the number that might be listening at any given time. It's the total circulation, if you will, of, radio, of a radio station. And to find Chris in this list was just really fun this week, or this last week in the trades, because there, uh, there are so few that still remain in that list. I think it was uh, about seven or eight stations that, that, that made the list both times out of 20. And it goes to show you that, and they're all such established brands. Out here in LA, it's Kiss and Coast. In New York, it's Light and uh, I think probably Z100 and a couple of others, a couple of stations in Chicago. You know, they're, they're really, really, you just go, oh, those brands were built to last and they have. You know, they haven't messed them up. Where others have gone away and never to be heard from again. And then there's some new ones that make the list, you know, like uh, here in LA, K-Earth and The Wave. And I think Jack FM made the list uh, here in LA that weren't on it 20 years ago. So there's people cycling in and out, but there's still those great brands like Kiss and Coast and Light and uh, just stay in there year after year. And, and hey, credit to them for really being on top of it. What I find interesting about this is the list parallels somewhat, but not nearly identical not even close to the list of the top 20, top 10 billing radio stations in America. In fact, the number one billing radio station in America, WTOP in Washington, D.C., isn't even in the top 20 cuming radio stations in America. So how, how do they do it? You talk about a remarkable sales job by Joel Oxley and Matt Mills and their team in, in, in Washington, D.C., to not even make this list, but to outbill Every single one of those radio stations in the top 20. It's amazing. 
Yeah, it is. Um, I, I, one of the things that, I, that I'm always fearful of when I look at these lists is that it gives us a sense of, of security. Well, we're still doing great. You know, look at those QM numbers. But what I'd be really interested in is if you took the total amount of persons utilizing radio in each of those markets over the past 20 years, what does that look like? We become so share-driven. We talk about, you know, I had a 5.7 or an 8.2 or a 3.1. Well, that's a share of the total audience. The ratings on a lot of these radio stations, as you know, has declined or has spread over more stations. So where you used to get a one, two or one, three or even a two in the mornings with some stations, you're now getting half of that. So while the, the list of these stations in terms of their QM is really interesting, my question is, are we looking at a declining QM for all of the stations in total? I would suspect that there is overall a slight decline in QM. I think the but I don't think there's a slight, I don't think there's a, as much a decline in persons using radio. I think the per would probably be, you know, p- parallel, whatever little climb, maybe a couple of percentage points down. Um, but it's the time spent listening. You know, it's, it's, the, it's the average quarter hour shares that we've seen erode. I'm fortunate to have worked for a country station in, in Tucson, uh, Kim FM. And, you know, they had a 20, 25 share in morning drive. I mean, it was just a massive, you know, and, and KRQ had a 20 share in their key demos. And, and you know, uh, they, we all battled it out with these massive shares because everyone was listening and they were listening for a long time. You know, they spent all day with you, you know. Nowadays, now there's just too many distractions. So what you see is now these QMs and radio selling QM. You know, Pierre Bouvard and everybody's pushing the reach of radio, how many people we reach. And that's all QM and QM and QM. But the problem is they're not pointing out the fact that people aren't listening for as long as they used to. So it makes it a more difficult buy uh, with people uh, you know, not spending as much time with the medium as they did before. Even though they're still checking in, they're not there for as long. So it makes buying difficult. Yeah, we're seeing the same thing with television, though, from a little different angle in the sense that television now is talking more and more about the thousands they reach instead of ratings. And that's because they're trying to they're trying to make sure they get record. They get they get the effect of every single person that's watching a television show. I'm talking about broadcast television in particular. A couple other quick comments I'd have on this uh, top 20 is that there are no AMs any longer. There were four AMs 20 years ago. There are no AMs anymore. So. You know, even these uh, these these monster AM radio stations that you and I have grown up with, and that the markets have grown up with, WCBS in New York, and uh, and WFAN, one of the very first sports stations in the country. Those those stations are no longer making it into the top twenty in terms in terms of audience. And also, if you look at the audience or the formats, it's my perception that although I haven't done this scientifically, that we are seeing a migration to older formats. You know, CHR was the number one 20 years ago with uh, Z100 in New York. And the number one CHR station or the highest ranked CHR station in today's list is KISS at number 10. Yeah. So the, the, the question becomes, you know, are we getting a much older demo in radio? Yes. And, and we're seeing that younger audience slip away to uh, music discovery on YouTube and, and, uh, and the streaming services. So it, it's not surprising. You know, it's just uh, welcome to the evolution of, of radio and also yeah. the stability of the formats, you know, continue to be there for those older appealing formats. I mean, Coast was always a 25 to 54 station, and it still is. And you know, so, so some of that younger audience is, 
aging into some of these other formats. That's if right. They do listen to radio, and and the younger, you know, the teens, if you will, and you know, twelve to twenty fours, are uh, are a whole. They're in a whole other universe in terms of where they're going and listening. Right now. Well, on the topic for further discussion at uh, some other point of media insultants is our podcasts, the personalities in podcasts, replacing the personalities that used to be listened to on the radio. And I can dial up my personality on a podcast anytime I want to hear them. And it doesn't have to be a radio personality. I mean, look at the success of uh, Joe Rogan, Joe Rogan. So, you know, he gets a hundred million dollars. That's more than any radio jock is getting these days with the exception of Stern. And that's, yeah, yeah. that's satellite. Okay. Well, well, but I think, I think what's interesting about the podcast side, and we'll get into this as we go through the show today, but I, you know, there's a lot of ex jocks doing podcasts because they weren't good enough to be kept at the stations they were at. They won't agree, but you know, Hey, there's a reason why they're not on the air anymore. And, um, and, and so they're, they're building up podcasts for their micro audiences, you know, so uh, the big personalities, of course, they've got a stream or they've got a podcast version of their show, you know, the Dave Ramsey's of the world and so forth. They've all, they're all repurposing their content online, but not exclusively. I mean, they're, they're, they're in a lot of different places. Yeah. It's a, as I said, topic for another, another discussion. (laughs) So you're a golfer and you know, we enjoy golf, a good game of golf. I've always thought golf on television with a few exceptions was pretty boring, but I can't imagine how boring it's been on radio in my whole life. I've never listened to any golf at all on radio, but it's a big deal because the master's rights went from Westwood one to Cirrus XM. My question to you is Keith, as a golfer is, does anybody care? Um, not anymore. Um, you know, and I, I would think, um, um, you know, it, I'm, I'm shocked that it took this long because, you know, Sirius ha- and, and the PGA tour have a, a partnership. They have a PGA tour channel on Sirius full-time golf channel on Sirius. And they're at every tournament covering it, you know, audio only through their Sirius channel. And Westwood had an, you know, a history of having the major golf championships covered on radio dating back, I don't know, 20, 30, 40 years, maybe, maybe even more. As long as there's been a network radio component for sports, they've had those majors on radio. Golf started on radio. Um, then into the, into the 60s, into the 70s and 80s, you start to get more television coverage of golf. Not all the tournaments were on television like they are now, and uh, uh, but they were all on radio, you know, or most of them were. And then it slipped down to be just the majors. And Westwood had the majors. Uh, my dad was an on-course correspondent for for Westwood One for a decade or or more. It was a lot of fun. But but and where why that worked was that there were sports radio stations who could never get media credentials to the Masters, to the uh, U.S. Open, to the PGA Tour, or the PGA uh, Championship. So instead, they relied on these guys that were doing radio updates from the course. Then you, so that that made like a little bit of a business. So they do the network stuff for Westwood One, and they do some live call-ins for your sports station or news station, sell a sponsorship, and uh, make a little side, side money because you were part of the broadcast team. And my dad did that. Then comes in the, the golf channel and Sirius. And now all of a sudden the dynamic changes and everything is on television. And so it doesn't really make much sense for it to be, uh, you know, full-time audio. So, you know, this makes sense to me. I'm sure Westwood just said, you know what, 
It's not, it's not worth what, what they want from us for it, apparently. It's a lot of expense for us to put five or six guys down there and a producer for a week you know, in Augusta and pay them all and try to sell the sponsorships to it when we're not doing that as well either. Uh, I bet they're, they're sorry to see it go because there's probably a few execs that loved going to the tournament, guaranteed, taking a few clients to the tournament, guaranteed. But, you know, my hunch is that it just, it doesn't pencil out anymore. And just let the, uh, the, the tour and, uh, and, uh, and Sirius cover it and be, be done with it. But it's sad because that was a great tradition. And that's, uh, you know, and, you know, where else can you hear guys just talking like this, Jackson? It's Jackson Del Weaver on the 18th hole, you know, and, and with, you know, it's a, it's a, it's, it's a bygone era and sad to see it go because of the history my family's had in it, but I'm not surprised. I'm, I'm still surprised there's actually a PGA tour channel on Sirius. I mean, I, I, they must get some listeners. Well, and I thought that too. I thought it, you know, that uh, the demise of golf on radio is uh, one of the last opportunities that air talent had to learn how to speak quietly into the microphone, <laughs> you know. <laughs> the other thing is, is that it may be a little uh, premonitional for we're probably going to see sports rights have a real problem over the next five years as they, as they come available because more and more networks like Westwood One, both radio and TV, are going to look at these and say, we can't justify the cost anymore. And, you know, we probably, and again, it's one of those things we've talked about on and off here at Media Insultant, but the, the reality is that teams have the best leverage to do their own media, in my opinion. They have the, the least amount of conflict with clients. They can pave the, the path with gold and anything they want to do without having to go back and forth between the station and the team. So maybe this, we'll see more of these kind of things where the rights move to other platforms or even back in-house. Well, and you know, with, with Sirius uh, as such a player on this, if you just go through your channel lineup, if you're a subscriber, you see all these conference channels they've got. They've got Pac-12, Big Ten. They've got, um, you know, every form, every, every form of sports audio is on Sirius. So how far away are we for where that will be the only place that sports audio is going to be? And they might even stream some of it on Pandora at some point. Uh, along with with Sirius for in car and and some in home and Pandora for in home, you know we, we're gonna. I think we'll see a time in the next five to seven years where you're right. There'll be radio. There'll be there'll be teams that do not have a, a terrestrial radio partner, and it's not because there's no listening. It's because why am I messing with the radio station? I can just I can just go with one company and do it all, or do it all myself. You know, we're already seeing on cable they have their own cable channels. Yep. You know, the Lakers have their own cable channel. The Dodgers have their own cable channel. The Dodgers have their own radio station that they own half of. Uh, the Angels have their own radio station that they run their games on. And it's just part of the package when you buy a sponsorship of the Angels. Oh, yeah, you get some spots in the radio. Okay, great. Oh, thanks. Great. Well, oh, yeah, that's right. You're on radio. Yeah, it's, uh, it's real interesting watching the way it moves. And I, I think the, the other thing that uh, I think is really going to be an important part of this entire thing with, with sports is going to be seeing teams simply reassess a lot more control over their over their external media. Okay, a couple of uh, of other quick uh, run bys. Um, direct response. We've all seen the direct response TV. We've heard the direct response radio. Everything from the little blue pill to tax abatement to you know uh, the the latest and greatest in in med medicinal kinds of beneficial things that people can can buy for $69. 
it used to be that stations would pick up, you know, in the stations I ran, you know, we'd pick up maybe a couple of hundred dollars a month, um, sometimes a couple of thousand, but we always got some DR money every month. And they were great for filling weekends with a news talk where you had a lot of fixed inventory uh, to round it out, that kind of thing. But it's been my experience there's a lot less response these days. Uh, now, it might be the offers, you know, are no longer really in line with the audience. It might be that the internet is a lot easier to access information and order than it is to dial a toll-free number. So yeah, yeah. that could be a factor. It might be, and this we don't want to hear, there might be that fewer people are listening, but then podcasting comes along and podcasting is almost totally, or in my perception, almost totally direct response. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, what, what's your feeling? Where does direct response fit into this media ecosystem, Keith? Well, I think it fits in everywhere. Uh, from an advertising standpoint, they love it. I mean, you know, if 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 it if it doesn't create a call, I don't have to pay. So you know, it's it's built on these you know this this cost per click or cost per call or you know we'll give you this, we'll give you that, and we'll give you your dedicated phone number, and then you get the report at the end of the month that you know you generated three calls, so you got fifteen bucks. You know, the the uh, the national networks would be out of business without DR. And it's, so it's not surprising to me that all these DR agencies, the ad results of the world, have all gone to podcasts. They've pumped tons into network radio. That's all you hear is direct response in network because they've got so much inventory. They've got a fixed amount of inventory. They've got to fill it. And, you know, heck, I remember making calls on direct response agencies when I was running sales for Sporting News Radio because, you know, I couldn't, I didn't have enough ratings to get the big dollars. So I had to go get direct response along with our few advertisers. And I was begging for it. At five years before the local radio station, I wouldn't even touch it. You know, I I'd throw them out. No, I don't want your direct response. Now I'm going, please. So, you know, we have this love affair with DR because, well, heck, it's an unsold spot. Let's run DR. We might get a few bucks. That's exactly what it is. And I think so many advertisers love that model now that, that, over what we've seen over the last couple of decades is that more advertisers who used to scoff at direct response, who knew, you know, are now totally deep into it. It fits exactly with all their digital tactics in terms of, you know, getting people to click on it and get the offer. And, you know, if, if you were on a website over the Christmas holidays, how many times were you asked when you first logged into a new site to do some shopping, if you join our mailing list, we'll take, take 15% off. The brand themselves are doing direct response for right. discount, you know, so it's everywhere. And it just kind of becomes so easy to do. And, uh, and, and we can prove the results. You know, we can attribute the results and it's all about attribution. And here's your reports. Here's how many people called your phone number and you're good to go. So it fits, it checks off a lot of boxes for people. I was just going to say, there's this subculture that most of us aren't, don't pay a lot of attention to the, the dot twos and the dot three TV channels that, yeah, exactly. Or some of the sub channels that television stations have, and they have networks like uh, the Weather Channel, and then they've got a couple of old TV show channels. Uh, Tenna is one of them. Those guys in aggregate have done about a half a billion dollars, about $500 million a year, but all of it, apparently almost all of it with direct response. But of course, it's kind of leveled out now. And my question is, I see less response and more of it is, are we seeing a certain uh, canary in the coal mine for any advertising on any media. Mm. It's so easy to skip over it. Yeah. Well, you know, Bob Hoffman talks a lot about this in his newsletters and his, in his blog posts and so forth. And talking about how, how 
the lack of creativity in advertising these days that nobody makes great ads anymore. Nobody does good ads anymore because it's all just direct response or it's all, you know, just a quick thumbnail. And it does, it's not even where it's almost throwaway advertising. And yet, in fact, it is, you know, where, where, where's the great ad campaign? Where's the great ad work being done? You know, it's, it's just not there. Yeah. I mean, there's lots of little social tactics that people are doing and having fun with and, you know, creating all the, all the buzz about, but it's not selling anything and it's not building brands. And so, you know, I think, I think we've just degraded the practice so severely that it's not, you're right, it's not working because it's not grabbing anybody's attention and it's not worth spending any time with. So quick jingle out. We'll talk about DR as time goes on because that's a real interesting space, particularly as it relates to podcasting. So, but I, wa- I wanted to jingle out with a, a question. We talked about the other day that Wondery mm-hmm. was being purchased by Amazon and the suggested price is around $300 million. Okay. And I proposed a couple of weeks before that, that Amazon would be a good candidate to buy iHeart. Now here's my question. And I really want to dig into this. Amazon sells $410 million worth of stuff every day. $410 million worth of stuff every day. To have a 5% increase in their sales, they'd have to sell an additional $16 billion in sales. Okay? Mm-hmm. There are a lot of businesses that might make sense to get that kind of a bump. Why would you put any money into the podcasting business that in total, might have done a billion dollars last year. I don't think it really did, but might have done a billion dollars last year. Why is Amazon paying any attention to this space at all? Uh, I'm glad you asked. I I think that they have probably been asked to buy every podcast aggregation company out there. They've probably seen every, every opportunity and they didn't. I think they bought Wondery because of the vision that Hernan Lopez had for that company from the very beginning. And it was very clear. He was not bashful about it. And he was a TV guy. He was a TV guy in LA. He was not a a garage podcaster ex-jock. He was a a content producer. He he developed Wondery with the plan that we're going to do some great podcast, but most of them are all dramatic podcasts or storytelling podcasts. These are not just guys sitting around shooting the shit podcast. These are scripted mostly and really well done, really well written, really well produced. And guess what? He's got what? Uh, a dozen that are in television development or are already developed for television. So I think this is a perfect fit for Amazon because they're buying him because it's a content farm for Amazon Prime. Okay, great. So this is, this is their, think of it as buying their own little mini studio. So what's happened is my television production friends, my producer friends tell me is that they can't get, it's just so hard to get something green lighted by the, by the cable networks. You know, how, what are they looking for? They're always looking for the next hot thing and this and that. So what Hernan did is he goes, well, forget the pilot and the expense of having to produce a pilot or a show concept. We'll do an eight-part, we'll do a 10-part podcast and build an audience for it. We'll build an audience of millions for it, sell it to the networks. The networks produce it. Well, guess what? They've got a built-in audience of millions who now want to see the video version of, you know, of the show that they followed on Wondery. And I think that's why it's such a great fit. I think that was Hernan's plan all along was to sell it to a studio or a network and it just happened to be the, the best one is Amazon right now with Amazon Prime and all the money in the world. So it makes a lot of sense. 
you can't think of it as them buying a podcaster. They're buying a content factory that comes out with some great stories and, and great productions. Okay, that is, that's a great observation. And the interesting thing is they bought Wondery and Wondery specialty is just that scripted programs. It's not an interview thing. It's not political. They don't, they're not the NPR base, you know, with, with all the political shows. And they don't do any of two guys shooting the shit, speaking of <laughs> oh, like us <laughs> shooting the shit. But we have so much fun. Let's do it again next week. What do you say? You know, I, hey, just get, get getting better and better. You know, it's just, just <laughs> too much fun. Absolutely. Have a great week, Keith. See you next week on Media Insultants. Adios, Jackson. Take care. <laughs>